Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, NWA, AA, and Birds of Prey. Should celebrities, especially diverse ones, get involved with the political process, or is this a recipe for public cynicism and disengagement? Is the Trump administration's platinum plan for black Americans a good thing for business and the country? Or is it simply opportunistic election strategy that trolls the media in the process? And in our Courage or Cringe section, Christian Cooper, better known as a Central Park birder, a major ad agency, and Starbucks all made very interesting diversity-inspired moves. Some are fantastic. Others, fantastic failures. We'll have a look. This and more provocative items on this episode of TDR. Jesus, we're just chatting about all the stuff that we can get into with this subject matter. It's one of those where every it's week we're— just too much. It's just too much. <laughs> we're always going, where do we start? How do we begin? Because these are pretty meaty subjects, and I feel yeah. woefully uh, ill-equipped to, to tackle them at depth, uh, but we're going to do our best. Y- you know, but— it, I think to that point, part of the challenge in these conversations, they're so nuanced. And in a time where everything's about, you know, social headlines and making it as sort of binary as possible, which is I think most people like to kind of see it, 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 they're just not, right? And I think that's actually a big part, maybe a big part of the theme of of some of the stuff that we'll be talking about today. So we've gotten cleverer and cleverer with our uh, episode titles, but uh, this one's NWA, at least that's how it starts. What does that mean? So let's start with... uh, uh, Ice Cube, right? So Ice Cube has been on the news uh, quite a bit recently. Um, and a big part of it is because of this um, this policy, this, this this initiative that he put out called Contract with, the Blair, with uh, Black America. Um, but if we take it back, to, I mean, let, let's actually bring it back to this inception as to how this sort of became a big news uh, item, especially right now. So on Tuesday, October 13th, um, the Trump campaign senior advisor, Katrina Pearson, she tweeted out a shout out to Ice Cube, thanking the, inter- the entertainer for helping the president develop his platinum plan, which was a two-page campaign promise to increase access to capital in black communities by almost $500 billion, right? Of course, as expected, in doing so, Pearson immediately sort of triggered this avalanche of criticism of, of, of Ice Cube. And for a whole set of reasons, everything from, you know, people calling him a sellout and and even claiming hypocrisy because uh, Ice Cube himself had been pretty vocal uh, previously, even calling for arrest. I think he had a song that where, he, where, he, where he called for the, for the president to be arrested. 
So he's been one that has been vocal about not supporting Trump and also vocal about not wanting to endorse Trump. And yet now, literally at the nth hour, right before the actual election, being praised uh, because of his work um, or guidance in setting up this platinum plan, which is part of the new policy that uh, President Trump released uh really focused against, against black America. And for some folks who may not know, Katrina Pearson, who kind of kicked off this whole pro, at least kicked it off in terms of the buzziness of it. Right. Katrina Pearson, exactly. Rage of it. Is, uh, is, uh, she's actually a Tea Party activist, and she was the national spokesperson for uh, the Trump campaign early on in 2016. She's also, uh, you know, she's a diverse woman, right? So her her, uh, her uh, dad is black and her mom is white. I'm not sure how she identifies personally, but anyway, yeah. that's a little about Katrina Pearson. She's also very, very outspoken, um, and uh, she kind of kicked this thing off. Uh, yeah, so you know, I mean, so I think the first response was all of the rage and sort of um, uh, heat that Ice Cube has uh, has been receiving, and and just to give a little more context on that, you know, one thing that um, Ice Cube has since come out and actually clarified what exactly happened, and um, you know, he basically said that both campaigns. Uh, had reached out to him, and he had a conversation with both of them. And we'll talk a little bit more about exactly what this contract with Black America actually is. I think it's super interesting. Yeah. Um, but his point was like, listen, I'm not endorsing one or the other. I spoke to both campaigns, um, and according to Ice Cube, it was a Trump campaign who basically took a more for what he had already put together through this this contract with Black America to try to incorporate into this plan, um, which was what was um, that you know Katrina Pearson actually uh, talking about. And as it relates to the Biden campaign, you know, according to Ice Cube, he said that while they also engaged with them, they basically said, like, why don't we wait till after the election uh, to have more of an in-depth conversation with you um, related to what you're proposing as part of this uh, contract with Black America. The part that's unclear to me is the timing around um, the platinum plan when that was being ideated and put together um, and Ice Cube's contribution to it. I, I know what's yeah. purported to have been added to it since they inter- interacted, but I know that Ice Cube's stuff was from July initially that it was yeah, published. Yeah, so I, I, Ice Cube's uh, um, yeah, pol- or plan basically came out at the end of July, mm-hmm. right at the end of July. He actually uh, did a, an op-ed for The Hill where he talked about this contract with Black America. And just, just to give a little more context there is – the idea here with this with this contract with Black America is it tries to address, you know, what what, what they see as the root cause for racism in in the society and to develop a roadmap for a comprehensive comprehensive solution, right? So it tries to go beyond the obvious, and more focused on areas of banking, finance, justice, policing, education, uh, Hollywood depictions, as well as system of, of reparations, right? Their their whole point is like none of those are actually. You know, you can't do them in isolation. They all kind of work with each other. It's part of a systematic core of, of racism as a whole. And, and the only really way to solve it is to kind of go after all of them, right? So that's basically, and we'll, we'll talk a little more in, in detail in terms of what those, those different elements are. But this is part of a fairly comprehensive plan that they put out. And these are more, I wouldn't call them, I think they're more like structures to a plan. They're more like guidelines, objectives of what they want to achieve. Right. Even in some cases, they say that they will work with policymakers to figure out what the actual policy is. But more is like here are the areas that need to be addressed, and in some cases, pretty specific about ways that they believe need to be addressed. But it's a pretty comprehensive thing that was put out at the end of July. Now, Trump's platinum plan came out on September 25th, right? So there was definitely some time in between that, um, where he at some point advised or met or did whatever. Yeah, and according to reports, there was basically meetings with some of the Trump's uh, campaign folks 
uh, with Ice Cube uh, specifically to talk about some of the elements that he was including uh, as part of the plan, right? And when you look at the at the actual plan, the the plan and plan that Trump put out, uh, there's a couple of key areas, right? One is, and probably the biggest one, is a $500 billion investment um, basically focused on black entrepreneurs and black businesses. And, and according to reports, that is probably one of the biggest uh, contribution that Ice Cube had in trying to influence that plan. Because apparently, initially, that plan and plan was maybe more like a bronze plan and didn't have as big of a dollar amount. <laughs> right. Um, but that was a big part of it. So it includes things like access to capital, fuel back, uh, fuel, black owned businesses, uh, cut taxes, increase education opportunity, lower the cost of healthcare, uh, further criminal justice reform. The other one that was directly, I think, attributed to to Ice Cube's plan is to make Juneteenth a national holiday. Yeah, um, and then to prosecute uh, the KKK as a as an extremist organization, although terrorist in, organization, terrorist sorry, the terrorist organization. Although in uh, Trump's plan, of course, he added Antifa as part of it because he always seems to actually have to bring up both both things. Um, uh, Antifa also as a terrorist organization, and then making lynching a national hate crime. Right, so. There were some key elements about, at least if it, it, it seems like, that were included in uh, in Trump's uh, plan and plan yeah. that, that you could probably tie back to what Ice Cube was, was presenting in his uh, contract with uh, with Black America. So here, here are some thoughts that I have, and just as a starting point, again, this is very – the plan that uh, – the contract for Black America is a very comprehensive plan. It covers all the pillars that you just described and each one of them at a pretty deep level, although I actually like – the website, and we'll provide the links in the show notes so people can actually look at this stuff to directly themselves. The website actually does summarize each point in a pretty decent way, so it makes it yeah. makes it pretty easy to follow along what they are. But having said that, impossible for us to diagnose every aspect of this plan, or even frankly, every aspect of the Trump plan. So I'll, I'll give you just some high-level thoughts maybe for us to kind of engage on. One is I, I love, as you know, the idea of sort of dissenting black voices. That to me is, as a starting point, a really good uh, place. And what I mean by that is that, as we've talked about before, I think I, I love the the idea when, um, you know, despite what the majority of people within a particular group may feel, there are people who think the opposite because I think that that – very much like the reason we started this podcast is good for the country, that sort of back and forth and that freedom of expression and opinion is actually a really good thing. So in this particular case, what I mean by dissenting is that, you know, uh, Ice Cube got a lot of flack and a lot of flack from the black community uh, directly for actually sure. engaging in the way that he, that he has. And so it's a tough thing to do, but I applaud him for that because I think we need more dissenting voices and more counter opinions and more different perspectives, not less. So that's the first thing. I can definitely tell you that I also identify, and I don't, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I definitely identify with the idea of, um, you know, being taken for granted. Uh, obviously, I have my own perspective as a Latino, but I but I also have some professional experience working with political parties as it, as it relates to the Latino vote and the black vote. And I can tell you that I definitely believe that the black community is kind of taken for granted on both sides in similar ways, frankly, to the Latino community, right? I think that the right kind of considers that they can make some progress, but not a lot. And they're kind of already starting from a very bad place. So almost like, why try? And I think that the left says, hey, we got them no matter what. So, you know, in a way, neither neither one kind of tries. So I do get this idea of sort of being left behind by either one of the political parties. And I can identify with Ice Cube saying, hey, you know what? I need to work 
we need to be practical about stuff and we need to actually address this wealth gap that he sees as the principal part of it. And right. I'm going to work with whoever's in power. I don't care who that is. And I'm tired of this, like, wait for the right moment before I talk kind of stuff. Like, I'm over it. So all of those things I like as a starting yeah. point. Yeah, no, and I, I get that. And I look, if I take a step back and, and try to dissect what, what Ice Cube is trying to do here. Now, his whole contract with Black America is a direct response to George Floyd, to this whole moment of social reckoning. And to his, to his point, trying to ad- address these massive systematic racial biases that have been in this country for a long time. So it really is pretty comprehensive. It is very much tied to wealth and access to yeah. wealth, everything to access to loans, funding. A lot of it tied to representation, what he strongly believes that more opportunities should be created for black Americans specifically to be more in line with, with the sort of representation that they have in the country, right? Which is about 13%, uh, give or take, uh, in terms of population. Um, so I, I get all that. I think the, 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 the part that is challenging here in my mind is, and even I could even understand, oh, I'll take a step back. I could even understand his point that, listen, we're being neglected in many ways. We have been very neglected in many ways by both political parties, um, because they only care for us come election, right? Now, in this case of of of, of Trump, or actually not even Trump, the Republican Party, part of that comes from the fact, too, you were saying earlier, is that they don't think they're not really accessible, is that when you look at the percentage of African-American voters that voted Republican in the, over the last two presidential elections, for Trump, he got about 8% of the black vote. Of those that voted, he got about 8%. And then for Mitt Romney, he got six. about 6%, 6%, right? About 6%. So, look, to, you can look at it two ways. One is like, wow, Trump like really increased the percentage of, of African-American voters that actually voted Republican. On a share basis. As a share basis, right? But it's still a really small number. So the reality is we're still talking about 92, 92%, give or take, uh, of African-Americans are still voting Democrats. So that does create the situation where in some cases you can't look at it as saying, well, that's a vote that I don't necessarily have to work that hard to try to get because sure. I'm going to get it anyway. And right? that maybe to me, that's the the first reason why Biden's response to Ice Cube rang cynically maybe on my part, but rang that way. It was basically – We'll talk about it after the election. Right. Do you know what I mean? Well, it was like, it's not really important for me to get elected, so I don't need to focus on it until after I'm president. That's, that's yeah, how I read Yeah, and I think if you want to take a very cynically. cynical point of view, you can say that. Although I really disagree in the case of Biden specifically, because Biden, unlike probably any other Democratic candidate, really owes his entire candidacy to the African-American vote. Right? The first two primaries he lost— like he didn't win them. No, he didn't come in the first place, basically. And it wasn't until, was it South Carolina? Blank right yeah. now, which one it was. I think it was South Carolina. I think it was right? South Carolina. Or North. It, was basically, it was a Carolina. It was a Carolina. Sure. I think it was South Carolina. Where it was the black vote that got all of a sudden skyrocketed by into the front. And it was really him that really resonates with, with, with that community, at least in that, in that state, that really allowed him to basically get the momentum that eventually got him the nomination and now puts him in a really good position to... Um, to potentially become the next president, of course, assuming you know, see, seeing how it all plays out in the in the general election. But I think he is one that definitely has a much more direct line of correlation to his success with African American voters. That maybe it's a little bit different than the party in general. Because I think to, I agree with you. I think the party in general can, to some extent, kind of ignore that vote because it's almost, it's almost like a given. Yeah. 
right? Um, but I, and think, I think that's mm-hmm. I don't see that as being the case with him. But I think Biden also has a bit of a history with this historically going back to the crime bill in 94. I know he didn't actually use the term super predators. That was Hillary Clinton. But nevertheless, he was a major architect, author of that particular bill, which I think now in retrospect, we look back and see incarcerated a whole generation of people. For sure. And a lot of them for minor drug offenses, that kind of thing. And and I think that, by mm -hmm. the way, and that's a great point, see, because I I, I agree with you. I think if Biden can take it back, he would. Um, But that's kind of the issue. That's that's the disconnect that I do see and the frustration that if I'm sitting here as a minority in this country and I think about both parties um, and the issue here, like, look, as as awesome as a plan on plan may sound with with President Trump, when your core part of your agenda is law and order, it definitely goes against many of the things that Ice Cube is talking about. Uh, associated with this contract of Black America. And it's not just police reform, right? It's about reducing minimum sentences, about getting people the right to vote immediately after they, they, they do their, their, um, their, their term, right? And, and, and you know, incarcerated after, the, after, after, after they're, they're, they're no longer incarcerated. There's a lot of issues that I think when you have a conversation with folks like Ice Cube, that they have a lot of issues in terms of how criminal reform uh, policing, as actually happens in this country, that directly impacts the livelihood of African Americans, right? Even but, the whole thing about people getting arrested for marijuana possession. One of the things that he has on here is basically anyone arrested for marijuana possession should just be let go immediately. So that message, relative to a message of law and order, go completely contradict each, each other. Yeah, right? and, I, th- and I, I, I think mm-hmm. that's part of the challenge. And I think to your point, when you look at some of the policies that. I will say Kamala Harris, even Biden, because both are candidates that are much more central. They're not as far left, even though Trump likes to claim that they're so far left. They're not. That's the reality, right? The Democratic Party has not fully embraced leftist positions, right? Like otherwise, Bernie Sanders will be will be the the you know the the candidate right now. That's yeah. just the reality, right? Right. Well, I think perhaps he he might have been on his way to being that candidate, but I think that some of the Structural stuff, DNC wise, maybe kept him from. Right, from that's what I mean. The, the Democratic Party has not embraced right. full left, like fully left right. uh, positions. But right? what Otherwise, I'm saying, there, there's there may be a difference though between the structure of the party and the people as well. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. Um, and but there's something there's some of that. My point is that both Kamala Harris and Biden are much more centrist in terms of their approach, which means that they are going to get into some of these areas where if you really sort of look at some of their policy decisions. Uh, even their stance with law and order, it actually, if you were to take away the names, they actually kind of feel a little Republican if if you want to sort of think about it in that yeah. sort of kind of modality. And I think that's maybe the issue that someone like Ice Cube is bringing up is like, look, I don't really care one way or the other. If we think about more of a bipartisan approach, here's where I believe my community needs to be able to move forward. And I'm going to work with whoever's in power to make that happen, right? That's giving, me, giving him 100% benefit of the doubt. The part where I am more skeptical of this and where I do understand the position of people that have issue with his, more than anything, timing of having this kind of conversation is that when you are having this kind of conversation with the, a Republican candidate like Trump in a position where poll after poll, he is losing and losing bad, right, that he's trying to do whatever he can to gain back any of that sort of any of those voters and whether you want to call it endorsement or not, you could say it's not an endorsement, but the second you are working with them, it is an implied endorsement. You can say it's not, you can yeah. say I'm going to work with anyone, but it is an implied endorsement. Yeah, and I think I, the, the, mm-hmm. the other part about Biden wanting to wait, the way that I also look at it is Biden actually does have a platform specifically addressing diverse people. And when I looked at, actually did the, tried to do the math, because they're always a little bit tricky when you try to do the math on some of, right. these, some of these plans. 
I think I netted it out to be somewhere in the range of between 350 and 400 billion dollars, right? Which is less than the 500 that what Trump is proposing. But it's pretty comprehensive across a number of different things that we're trying to invest. I could also see the Biden campaign saying, hey, Ice Cube, like we appreciate what you're trying to do. We're literally four weeks away from a campaign. Let's give them full benefit of that. To not sound opportunistic, that also I'm trying to bring you on board and so you could basically endorse me. Why don't we actually talk about more of your specifics as we get past this campaign? Because we also have already a pretty comprehensive yeah. plan that we have in place. And by the way, we're not going to have to announce it a yeah. month before yeah. elections because we've already actually given it that thought from way before that. You put a lot out on the table. A couple things. Um, That's I my think overwhelm you with 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 stuff. A deluge <laughs> of things to sift through. I'm not going to tackle all of them, but let me just tackle a couple things that came to mind. Number one is, I definitely disagree with the premise that um, a message of law and order is at odds with, um, you know, 100% at odds with communities of color. Although I understand the points that you've made, and in fact, I think that if the question was, hey, I want to get in, um, you know, tuck in with people who are for prison reform. Biden obviously has never been president, but he was a vice president and his signature, you know, legislative accomplishment is the crime bill, which we've already talked about. Whereas the prison reform and there has been prison reform that's happened under the Trump administration actually has a lot of things that I think people like Ice Cube and who are clearly not Trump supporters would find favorable. So I actually yeah. don't see those things. I always things. think that has been the one area where, and we've talked about this before, where I do think Trump doesn't get enough credit for that stuff. Right. I don't think he does. So I think that, that like, you know, that idea, I think, is not necessarily squared, um, at least, you know, from my standpoint. The other thing is, um, and, you know, you touched on this a little bit. There's, it's a comprehensive plan. There's a lot here. But there are some things that the, pre the way that the premise begins, at least for me, I've talked about some of the things that I liked. But for me, that immediately jumped out is like, I can't get on board with this. One of them was the idea that, look, I'm not talking about diversity. I'm not talking about oh, yeah, communities yeah. Yeah, of color. Talk that, yeah. I'm not talking about black and brown people. I'm talking about blacks descending from slaves. Like, let's get something clear. Like, this is what we're talking about. And by the way, to clarify, that comment specifically, because that's not, that's actually listed nowhere in the website of Contra with Black America. But that comment that you, that you were just making is actually, is almost a direct quote to Ice Cube himself talking about this. With uh, with Chris Cuomo in an interview that he did on CNN just a, f a few days ago, where he was sort of clarifying his position, but he was very clear about that. Like, hey, this is not a diversity play, but everyone knows this right. is specifically focused on on blacks that are come from slavery. And right? let me tell you where where I'm not on board, and but where I understand where he's coming from. Yeah. I'm not on board because the idea of I'm not on board with balkanization. I'm not on board with segregation. I'm not on board with all those things that drive further division in people and identify them and reduce them only to their immutable characteristics, generally speaking. I think that we are, which is why I like dissenting voices as much as I do, because I think when 92% of people vote a particular way, I think that's bad. And I'm not even saying that what they're voting for is not something good. I just think it's bad that 92% of people do one particular thing. It, it just thing. feels like herd mentality to you. Is that is that part of it? It seems a little bit like it's a reflex as opposed to a thoughtful kind of thing, right? I'm not suggesting that they're, they're voting against their will or anything. Right. Obviously, they're not. Yeah. But I think it feels reflexive, right? And so to me, that's that's sort of like a challenge. So like I get the idea of 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 this, you know, or I like the idea that this is kind of a, a dissenting voice and all of that. Um, and so I'm for that. The the part that I don't agree with is this kind of, you know, balkanization. Although where I come back on his side, again, is I do understand somewhere in that Chris Cuomo interview, what he was basically saying is, look, every time we talk about diversity, you turn it into a cause thing. 
Like it's a nice to do. He's, I, and I'm not, now I'm like reading tea leaves, right? This yeah. is not what he said, but I can kind of sense in what he talks about some of what we talk about on the day to day, which is I want to tether my thinking to the gap economically. I want to talk about like empowering people from a business standpoint. I don't want to talk about this as charity, as a cause, as a fund, yeah. as a nonprofit. And I think on on that level, I understand that and I agree with him. I don't think it's about that, which is obviously or also the reason I'm so suspect when the government ends up being the arbiter of all this stuff, because I think that is the, the, the place where that has more likelihood of, of happening rather than the private sector. But anyway. But, so, but those, but yeah. I mean, but Charlie, those, those kind of feel like two different thoughts though, right? Because to your they point. There are three different thoughts. <laughs> okay. To, to his point, like the, 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 when you look at the policies that he is pushing for, yes. they're very action oriented. They are very focused on access to wealth. But that's a completely different thing. And I agree that they're not sort of tied to necessarily charity. It's about fair representation. This is what actually going to help close the gap and address the systematic, basically, issues that, are, that, that especially black people in this country have dealt with. Um, and by the way, part of it is that, and the thing we haven't touched on is that what he puts at the very, very end, which, he put, which, which the section is called black responsibility, is almost like the response to that. And if we do all these things, then we have to do some we stuff ourselves. we have to ourselves. be better by doing all these things. The way that we, we can't use excuses anymore. Like, I, I really love the fact that that was incorporated as part of that because it sort of it adds a level of accountability. But having said all of that, I still think there are two different thoughts. One is that sort of not being charity, being very accountable, very focused around you know, building wealth. And the second is this notion that um, of how you presented it, which is this is not about everybody else. This is specifically for this community, which I'm very focused on. And I will tell you, like, I had very mixed feelings. When I, when I first saw that, that interview with Chris Cuomo, I was frankly, like, super disappointed to hear that from him, right? Wait, and, to hear and, what from him? When he said that, like, this is not about diversity. This is specifically right. for black people. B- before, hang on. But before you go and explain why you're disappointed, let me just double click into that. Yeah. My point in saying that um, I understood that that perhaps his motivation about this being discreetly a black thing and a kind of prosperity thing is that sometimes you can put all these things into one bucket and it sort of waters down what you're actually trying to achieve, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I understand And that. I see some of that when we talk to people about the power of diversity relative to business and somebody says, oh yeah, we uh, developed a foundation for, you know, uh, black and brown, you know, whatever. That's awesome. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this specifically. So that's kind of what I meant was yeah. that, that that orientation does exist. I don't agree with the sentiment philosophically of like dividing things, but I'm, I'm trying to get at what his motivation may yeah. have been. And, and right. So when I, like as I was saying, so when I first heard it, I was, I was frankly pretty disappointed to hear him say that. Um, now, the reason I was disappointed is that I think that many of the issues that he is trying to address bringing up are issues that are very common to black and brown communities, right? And, and issues that are that are shared in the sense of lack of access to finance, to capital, for investment, for lending, some of the same issues that have caused many of these, these communities to sort of stay poor for a long time, right? So that's what kind of bothered me. But And I think what, when you think about a focus specifically on black Americans, I could see it as sort of two ways. One is, as you said, like it, you could, the orientation could be around focus, or the orientation could be around exclusion. 
And in all of this entire movement, especially around Black Lives Matter, like I really have been very supportive of that because I've seen it as an orientation around focus. Like you got to start here. This issue with 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 the Black Americans dealing with police and that has happened historically. It's not that it doesn't happen to Latino to Latinos, of course. It I saw does. it firsthand. I saw it for myself and my family members, especially where I grew up. But I can totally understand that as an area of focus. But I've never actually I've never seen that movement as a, as, an, as a movement of exclusion. I think it's part of the reason why you had such broad representation across different ethnic groups that were supportive of that movement. Yeah, and him saying it, I, that was kind of my initial gut reaction when I when I saw it. But the more I've now spent time looking at the policies that he's proposing within contract with Black America, I actually feel significantly better about it. Like honestly, if he in my mind, if he doesn't even say that, I still understand the the focus on on African Americans specifically, Black Americans. Uh, even if you if you want to make it about, which by the way, nothing about this policy actually says you have to be someone that is descendant of slaves. Is you can't even do that. You can't even figure out how to how to actually functionally do that. So. Well, there's some of that even in what he is proposing, though, which is always the devil in the details for me. Is you're going to have to determine who black people are. There's going to have to be, you know, Katrina Pearson who kicked this whole thing off. As I mentioned, her dad is black, her mom is white. Is she black? Sure. For the purposes of the plan, because we're talking about the federal government yeah. doing some of this, right? So there's going to be some part of this, which there's, is there's also makes that, me but the, very uncomfortable. But, but even I, the tie to, to where you're descending from, it, it, I think is impossible to do that. I get it. It's by impossible way, to do that. By the way, I also, this is something also that I uniquely understand, and then I have no clue how to even address or begin to solve, that the black experience relative to people who are descendant f- descended from slaves is different than people who are darker, have more melanin, come from other, maybe even African uh, immigrants, right? Right. So it is just a different thing. That unique history of what happened to the, to, to, you know, at that point, African uh, people being brought over here against their will and the subsequent generations that followed is a unique aspect of yeah you know the, the, of the country that deserves a, a specific attention that that like so recognize that but i also think that the whole idea well, of we're but, here but you're there both, doesn't right work. charlie because look my ex-wife is from kenya mm-hmm. right i saw it when we were together many many years so i saw it firsthand right her unique experience as someone that is african not african-american african is different right sort of her background etc mm-hmm. but at the same time being in this country, she still dealt with a lot of the same issues that any, frankly, dark person is going to deal with in terms of some of that implied racism, actual racism, all the issues that, that, you, that you deal with. So I agree with you that the, the experience, the sort of the starting point, it's, it is very different, but there is a, a commonality that happens with everyone that is in that in that category, regardless. Agreed. I mean, I, right? I felt the commonality personally. So, I mean, I understand that, but, it, yeah, but I can't so, equate myself with that particular lineage and experience. For, for sure. So, I, I, you know, that was a little bit of my issue when I saw the, this. When I heard the first speak to it, I sort of had that reaction. The more I look at what the actual policies they're pushing for, I think – if you were to take some of these, and not saying I'm not saying that I agree with every single point, I'm simply saying if you take some of these, I definitely think that you could look at it a more broadly, and b I think it will have even if you have it as focused as the way that to describe it, would have a positive impact against all diverse people, not just African Americans. I agree, and I think that as a framework for discussion, debate, and legislation, I think it's actually a very good one. I think though what is missing for me, and it's a major element that's missing for me, is any emphasis discreetly on. Not on um, the family specifically. 
right? The family, the religious community, the kind of organs that can help beyond the government to help, um, uh, you know, basically fix the situation that the black community lives with every day. Like for instance, and you and I have talked about this, not on this podcast, but the level of, um, you know, children growing up in single parent homes in the black community is extraordinarily higher than un- than other groups, higher than Latino, which is already very high, certainly higher than white, almost three times the white number. And there's really, really good science and data that indicates that that puts kids at disadvantages that are significant when you're growing up and you particularly don't have a dad in the house. So, and that's not to say that everybody, because obviously we all know and, and have people that we love and care for that, that are in that category that, that don't have this issue. But just statistically, it puts you in significantly worse odds. And nothing here, whether it's lending reform, the Federal Reserve issuing bonds for um, uh, you know, black, black children where they're born, almost like the GI Bill back in the you know, World War II, uh, data and credit, all of these things, financial oversight, police reform, none of them really address discreetly how we begin to bring the black community together in that particular way and how churches and other organizations get involved in that process. Like there's nothing in here along those lines. And that's something that's missing for me to make it comprehensive. But as a framework so that we could say, hey, we're going to debate, discuss these 13 things. Wait, is it 13? Yeah, these 13 things and come to decisions along this framework, I actually think it's very good because it covers a tremendous amount of stuff. You know, I, I, I want to push back a little bit in terms of what you were saying about the that is not addressing the family dynamic, right? I think part of the way that is looking at addressing the family dynamic is specifically around prison reform, judicial reform. Um, and the reason for that is because I think part of the challenge that you've seen in diverse, diverse communities is the over-policing, over-imprisonment, over frankly, some, you know, crimes that are pretty minimal, right? One of the things that I, I found really interesting is even one of the things that they were pushing for within prison reform is it said that first offense for illegal drug use or possession to require government payment for entry into an approved drug rehabilitation program rather than imprisonment. There's a lot that is here specifically dedicated to how do you make sure that we're supporting people, that we are you know, uh, rehabilitating people rather than immediately put them in prison. And I think a lot of it, maybe to some extent, you know, comes... In response to this is why when I talk about the law and order approach, and I, I understand it. I'm not saying that law and order fundamentally goes completely against everything associated with African-Americans or, or diverse audiences for that for that matter. I'm not saying that at all. But I do think that that sentiment of, of actually focus first on policing, on imprisonment, on basically the, the rule of law more than actually like service is what I do think there's a disconnect here. And, and when you, so you pull out some of these pieces and you think about well, how many African-Americans are currently in jail relative to the population? And when you think yeah. about the kind of crimes that they get, they get you know, put in jail for, and you think about sentences for other, other ethnicity, other groups, I think it's a big disbalance here that, that has been occurring for years, right? And there's the, the war on, on, on drugs that I think it was Ronald Reagan who first actually put that, put that out had a massive impact in terms of what that meant for these communities. How many people were being basically pulled out of their homes for frankly, now things that are that are legal, like marijuana possession. I mean, how many people are actually still in jail now that started off with marijuana possession? Yeah. And how many people are now making money on marijuana possession, on marijuana, you know, especially in a state like California, Colorado, et cetera? I believe that the things you just mentioned do have an impact and relate to the issue that I just described. I don't think any of them come close to actually addressing it. And I think this is definitely a philosophical difference. I believe that it's very difficult to transact 
um, fixes like this. I don't every like as an example, nobody likes going to the DMV, right? The DMV is, and why don't we like going to the DMV? If you really think about it, and I'm sure everybody's had a good experience at the DMV, maybe once or twice in their life, but for the most part, it's pretty bad. Is because that experience, the TSA is another example, feels very transactional. We could give the DMV or the TSA $10 billion more, and the transaction would still be the same. It would still feel very, you know, bottom of the uh, of the uh, of the, the the funnel in terms of service. There's no connection. There's no relationship. And that's what you need to actually fix issues like this. Let me tell you what, as an example, I like, which is actually in Trump's black plan. But I'd like to say, and I'm not saying this is it, but something like this, right? In Trump's plan, his plan pledges to give black churches the ability ability to compete for federal resources for their communities, meaning that a black church can vie for the billions of dollars that are out there for um, to come into the community and then use those funds and resources to actually implement the kind of relationship and close to the ground change that can actually lead to better things. I don't think that giving the same amount of money only to government organizations or other things can fix a challenge like this. And all I'm saying is that even the part of the framework that says family is missing, and I think it should exist, there should be a 14th one, at least maybe more, that addresses that specifically. And it's okay, that's and, and that's that's sure. the kind of thing I'm, I'm referring to. No, that, that's, that's very fair. Um, anything else on, uh, on Ice Cube? Look, I, I think my bottom line for an Ice Cube in, in this contract with Black America is that I, I definitely can appreciate the thoughtfulness and the breadth of policies and ideas that they put forth to try to address some of these gaps that have occurred over generations. I mean, that's the reality, right? When you think, when you think about building wealth, when you had issues with the GI Bill, we had issues with African-Americans not getting access to some of the homes you know, through, through loans, that's where a lot of this wealth wasn't created generations ago that has now had this kind of impact. And, and I do like the idea of having this be so comprehensive. Uh, so I think I give him a lot of credit for that, right? And someone that is, you know, maybe most of us think of Ice Cube as more of a musician, an actor, you know, but but he probably doesn't get probably enough credit for this kind of work in my mind. I do think that the timing of it is a little bit suspect and more suspect in the case of like, if you're Ice Cube, like you also know, like the reality is when you're engaging in this conversation at this late in the game for have this kind of push with this kind of president who, by the way, continues to, say a lot of things off the cuff that just come off as, as not sounding very supportive of the black community. I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about, you know, like how do you reconcile this platinum plan with some of the sound bites that he talks so much about, especially when he's trying to go after suburban women and this scare tactic of like, look, at the, they're going to put all of this low, low income housing in your neighborhoods. Do you really want that? Well, who are you scared of? Yeah. Right? What do, what do those people look like? Let me take a wild guess, right? They probably look a little darker than you. Right. Right? And, and so it's like that's the part that I have a really hard time reconciling. And Even I though understand. there's elements about his yeah. plan that I agree with him. Like if you took it, if you look at it, if you literally erase his name yeah. and just look at the plan, you're like, okay, I could, I could that sounds sure? pretty interesting. And that I think that's the good. problem. I mean, it's like even with this whole election, you know, I think there's literally only one candidate. It's Trump and whoever's against Trump. I mean, that's really- I, I completely agree with you. That's it. And because he can be very, very polarizing. I think, you know, sadly to the comment on, you know, suburban uh, women, do you want the public housing thing moving in next door? Like, sadly, even though I understand what you're saying, I actually think the reason why that works is even worse. 
And the reason is that, that people are very concerned about their money and their property values um, going down. Like, I think that's the first yeah, thing they think probably. about. Yeah. They might think about the race of the people second. I actually think it's worse that, they're, that, they, that it works because we're so focused on what our you know, home value is or whatever. Yeah, but, yeah. but anyway, um, I can definitely understand that. I also think, though, that it's worth at least reflecting on this idea that, you know, I heard recently it brought up, actually on Chris Cuomo, um, somebody brought up, and I'm going to forget who, maybe it was Ted Cruz or something, but um, I have this weird crush for Chris Cuomo. I actually like Chris Cuomo. I think he's, he just seems like a good guy, like you'd work out, grab a beer, talk about stuff. I don't know why. I don't agree with anything that he says practically, <laughs> but I actually like him. I like him. I hate to say that's that, good. but I like yeah, him. You know what? But anyway, he, was, he, he had a conversation recently, I forget who was being interviewed, but the person being interviewed brought up, hey, if we're going to talk about, you know, uh, racist corollaries, you know, Biden and Hillary went to uh, um, what's his name? The guy who was the senator who was in the KKK and then he Bird, Robert Bird. He went and spoke. He did a eulogy at Robert Bird's uh, funeral and, and whatever. And Cuomo was like, yeah, but Bird renounced his KKK affiliation and said that he was wrong and all this other stuff. Which is all true. Oh, yeah. Right? I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah but that's also a big part of, of – um of Biden's really brand for a long time is being able to work with folks across the aisle, even when he like really disagree with them. And it was honestly, it's like another age of politics, right? Where yeah. it was actually celebrated that you can somehow find middle ground with people that you don't agree with. We're not in that case now. No, like, there is and zero need, middle ground. And we right? need and we need to get back to that for sure. I think this is a little bit different with Bird though, because he was a Democrat and he was like Hillary Clinton's mentor. I think the point of it is though, the point I'm trying to make is that in the interview, I think Cuomo correctly said, "Hey, dude, this guy stopped believing that 40 years ago. He amended his life. He said he was wrong. He did all these things, and so we value what he says now, right?" And I don't think that that logic oftentimes is applied in every direction, right? And I'm not even saying that like Trump was something and became something else. If anything, he was a Democrat, was hanging out with hip hop guys and stars and celebrities all the time. And now he's like persona non grata among that same group, right? So, but I am saying that if we can do that with one group, we should be able to do it with the other to say, hey, maybe they did feel that way, but right. they no longer feel that way. Do I think that Robert Byrd was a hardcore racist when he died? No. Was he in the KKK? Yeah, he was. Mm -hmm. And so I believe in redemption. I believe people can change. I believe that you can actually be convinced of something and then go, oh, wait a minute. I actually, now I understand why I, that, that, that doesn't make sense. Right, right? But part of that belief comes also from atonement, comes from your actions, comes from what you're saying. 100%. The problem with, with President Trump is that he just finds ways to add fuel to the fire all the time. And even when I he agree. has literally layups. I agree. Layups to say, hey, simply say, look, you can, you, can, you can say, I just renounce all terrorist organizations that, you know, that are tied to KKK. It's just such a simple thing to just do. But yet, it feels like every time that opportunity comes up, there's some kind of asterisk where, no, yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I don't support, you know, KKK. But it's never like... As crystal clear as it could be, there's always something that is there. By the way, I I strongly don't believe that that President Trump is some kind of like Klan member. Of course not, but I do think that he likes to use race as a trigger to activate his base. Yeah, and conflict in general is something that he definitely lives for. So I I, I think he uses that in in some ways. I think it's part of what got people so passionate about him to begin with because he could be sort of unhinged, unfiltered, and people like that to some degree. Uh, but it feels like even though the things that could be just layups, he just has a hard time 
just yep. being able to separate himself for that. And I think that's the reason why you really can give him the benefit of that, that somehow his mind has changed something that he continues to do all the time. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, the issue with him, and I can tell you that I also agree he's not obviously not a clan member. I don't believe that he's a racist. Um, and I, and I believe the reason for that, certainly not a white supremacist. The reason for that is because first and foremost, he's a really good businessman or was, and a, and a, and a good marketer, which is also his biggest fault in my opinion, because he's thinking of things always as a marketing campaign or as an election. And I think that the real easy reason to know that he's not a white supremacist is there's no advantage for him in it. There's none. There's no advantage for him from a number standpoint. There's no advantage in him for power or authority. I mean, you could kind of make the case the other way, right? Which is why I'm also, um, I also believe his position on other issues like pro-life is an example. We've seen the numbers. There's not an advantage in having his position from a number standpoint. There is an advantage politically in terms of solidifying your base. But if you were to look at like, what's the best, most popular, biggest, the thing that can get me the most power, it wouldn't be that. So I think that like, because he is such a marketer business thing and he's only thinking about get achieving and getting to the next level and making sure that he's not a one-term president and that's what drives him, that's the same reason, I think, why some of these things can't be true because there's no advantage in them for him. Well, I, I don't yeah. understand the advantage I, I, of being a white supremacist. I think Somebody I, have to explain that one to me. I'll agree on one out of the three things you just said, mm -hmm. which I think he's a great marketer. I really I really agree with that. Him, in terms of like his own PR person, a great, great marketer, um, I don't think he's a great business person. Like you can't lose money that many years in a row and still be considered yourself a, a nice business partner or go bankrupt that many times and still be considered a good business person. Um, and then I do think that, look, I, once again, while I don't claim him to be KKK, I do think that if at some point when you do enough of one thing, it's hard to say that you're not that one thing. When you use race, race baiting and put it and make us part of your messaging, even if you don't believe it, there comes a point where I have to more be driven by what you say, what you do, maybe what you don't say. Um, so I think there is some level of racism that's within him. Otherwise, he will have a hard time really – otherwise, I don't understand why he has such a hard time just simply separating himself because there is no benefit to your point, right? There's no benefit of, of tweeting a video where someone says white power. There is no benefit. But yet, somehow it kind of happens to yeah. a guy that lives on Twitter all the time. Right, yeah. so I think, think that's the part that I that I just I struggle with. I think there with. are I mean, some I think elements those are hard yeah. to reconcile. But I mean, the, the, I think mm -hmm. the point that we're getting at is that's why when you see these kind of platforms that he put out there, they're so hard to reconcile with who he is as a person because he's constantly undermining his own policies, and that's the challenge that I have with someone like him. Yeah, no, I, and I understand that. I mean, there's he's a very complex character, and it would and in some ways very simple character, um, <laughs> and it would That's take a, an, an, an entire uh, other show. Uh, all I'm saying is the the principles that we've abided by certainly on this show I think continue to hold true in particular now, which is go to the sources, read this stuff yourself. Um, you know, get a handle on what is said, not what is said about the things that are said. And to that, I'll continue to hold true because I think we could, you know, go back and forth on this um, from a, you know, yeah, perspective and I, and standpoint. I think to that point, especially as it relates to Ice Cube, like read the contract with Black America. Yeah, I think it's super interesting to see what he has. Yep, I do too. We don't, I don't think we, neither of us agree with every single element that's in there, but I think he brings some really interesting points. And I think the whole notion of creating wealth, access to capital, those are all really important ways to really make actual change. 
Because that's the challenge that, that I see ultimately at the end of the day with, with diver, many diverse Americans here is the, the lack of access to capital that really keeps them in these, in these positions where they lack power. 100%. And the generational wealth thing, because that's a real thing. It impacts yeah. the Latino community as well. It's just hard to do when you, you know, we've got basically what we've earned for the most part. You know, my dad didn't leave me anything, um, you know, and, and you can see how that little nest egg can help you start a business, it's can a help huge, you do whatever it makes, it makes an yeah, enormous sure. difference. Um, okay. Well, moving on, definitely read your sources. Let's go to uh, Courage or Cringe. There's quite a bit here. So um, let's start with uh, with uh, Christian Cooper. So Christian Cooper, better known as the Central Park birder, who was the, uh, the African-American uh, bird watcher um, who was – had an altercation with a absolutely hysterical woman. If you ever, if you watched the video, I'd never seen the video until in preparation for this. Oh, really? For this oh, podcast. I mean, obviously I uh, knew Amy the Cooper video existed and I saw memes of it, like, you know, but I'd never actually seen the full video. <laughs> it's absolutely hysterical. We can definitely talk yeah. about this, but anyway, he, um, w- w- you know, we're going to do courage or cringe and we might have to add a, another C word in here at some point because a couple of these may not act, either be courage or cringe, but let's start with Christian Cooper. Um, what, what's the story and what, what, what do we think about it? Right. So as you mentioned, Charlie, right, he's best known for this incident that happened. And this was back on May 25th of 2020, right? When, when, this, ha- when, this, when this happened in Central Park. And he had his encounter with Amy Cooper, who basically called the police on him. And Ironically named the same. Uh, same last name. Last name <laughs> which is super interesting, right? That's another um, part I just paid attention to for the first time. I know. And um, and it was all because her dog was on leash. And this this guy's a pretty serious birder. And apparently in this specific area, they're not supposed to be uh, unleashed the dogs because they can, you know, scare off the birds. Um, but was basically acute, was was calling calling the police, saying that she was, gonna, you know, that she was being threatened and all captured on video. So it was just a a perfect example of, unfortunately, the kind of issues that African-Americans have to deal with in this and how police can be used as a weapon against them. Right. And she knew this very clearly. And there was all this fallout fallout that happened because of it. She lost her job uh, for some period, even lost the dog, although was able to get it back. But Mm -hmm. it was all this fallout. Right. Yep. So fast forward. um, So now uh, Christian Cooper has actually written a uh, a comic book, right? And the story is actually loosely inspired by, of course, that racist encounter in the park. And it's the first of a digital series called Represent uh, from DC Comics, right? So mm-hmm. just to give you the quick gist of what the story is, is this character Jules, which is a young black man with an interest in birds, received these bin- uh, binoculars from his father who claimed they have special powers, right? And, and the binoculars themselves show Jules a parade of faces along with each bird he spots. So everything from Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and other black men and women killed by police, right? At, at one point, while walking to the park, a white woman letting her dog run wild acts violently to Who Jules' request. Who could that be? Right, for her, for her to <laughs> leash it. So yeah, like reminds you of what again, right? So that's, but that's the story, right? So they sort of took this real life event. And by the way, the thing that's so interesting about the story is that the day this happened is the same day that George Floyd died. So you have all yeah, of these events right. that are sort of tied together. But basically took this really, um, I would say, important moment in terms of this movement, right? Because it was like, you started to see this momentum of so it didn't pick off. And then when, with George Floyd, it was like, that was the last straw. And then turned it into this comic book. So, yeah, I mean, I guess what's your first response when you hear about this? And I'll, I'll get a little more into the detail, but I just I just, I just, want to pause there and get your response. Yeah, um, I, I really like it. I, first of all, I'm, I'm obviously a big fan of art. I like graphic novels. I think they're a really cool kind of medium. 
I like the storytelling aspect, at least what I've seen of it, where the bird watcher is seeing birds, but then behind the bird is this other layer of story that kind of walks through all of these incidents and cases and kind of shapes that. Because I think this achieves a number of things. I think, A, it's very interesting and compelling, um, and and it brings awareness to people who may not be familiar with with those you know particular incidents. Um, and does it in a way that is new. It's not like a news show or something. It's actually like a, you know, a bit of, of, of art in a sense. right? So I like all those things. Um, and I also like the fact that in simultaneously doing this art, you're also letting people who, I guess, historically, and I don't know that, I didn't know this about the graphic novel community, but is also one that is very not diverse historically. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's a good right? Point. So I think you're also giving you know, that opportunity to, to actually have, uh, you know, diverse makers in that particular genre, which I also think is a good thing. The thing I don't like about it is that um, they made it like free, right? So anybody can get it, which I understand on one level that you want everybody to see this. But I also think that some of the, then it puts it, then going back to my Ice Cube point, it's like, couldn't this have been maybe some free stuff that was more promotional, but also have the material actually be at a premium because it's good, right. because it's worth that, because you should pay for it, right? So I think it DC in an attempt to make it you know, available to everybody and whatever gives it that aspect of this is a cause thing. It's a nonprofit. It's a whatever, or at least yeah. runs at risk. That's my one beef with it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about that, right? Uh, by the way, in this series uh, called Represent, it's really the first, and this one, the the bird. Uh, it's called Bird. I think the first, the, the first comic, which is the one uh, that, that that he created, um, is really the first installment of a series that aims to present works, you know, from creators traditionally sidelined in mainstream comics, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly those who are non-white, queer, or both. Um, I hadn't thought about the your your point about it being free. Um, and to your point, right? It could be sort of you can look at it two ways. It's a way to make sure that everyone gets sort of a chance to be able to see this content because it's so important. Um, but also when it's free to, yeah, I mean, I think it also kind of loses a little bit of its value, right? Uh, what I found really interesting about the story, so I, I definitely put it, I don't know if I put it courage, I guess I would maybe put it in the courage sort of sector. Um, I think it does a couple of things. One is, which is doing already, if it creates an opportunity for more of these diverse voices to be part of sort of comic book storytelling, that's important. And I think comic books in general, and it's not just a DC issue, Marvel has the same problem, is that they just they just haven't been well represented. You haven't, you haven't seen enough all these sort of diverse stories. So I love I love that aspect of it. I also think that the role that comics has played historically, maybe a lot more before than now, but many times comics were, you know, sort of social commentary, right? There was there's For definitely sure. a lot of, of stories about the roots of things like X-Men, which was very sort of timely in that moment uh, of, of social commentary, commentary, I'm sorry. And so I like that. I like being able to see these kind of versions of of story that for a certain population, like that's the way that they're seeing sort of, and, and by the way, and if that's a way that for those that maybe are not as well informed, that didn't know about all these different sort of issues, that they sort of uh, learn about it, I think it's actually a pretty, pretty cool, uh, pretty cool thing to, to do. I agree. So it's a courage for me. Yeah, for sure. So I think we're in agreement on that one. I think it's, it's great. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the other series that they have as part of this represent series, but, uh, but I thought it was, a, it was a strong move there. And by the way, last point on this, in terms of the making it free, you can imagine the conversation, right? The people inside of DC going, wait a minute, if we charge for it, are we going to be accused of uh, taking advantage and exploiting all of this stuff? And I think even though that question is understandable, in a way, it's a byproduct of the actual problem, right? Which is the people in that room having that discussion 
are not the people that should be having that discussion, yeah. right? Because the answer could be very simply, look, we're going to give the proceeds, A, to this guy, Christian Cooper, because he's a maker as part of this, the other diverse makers, and we're going to, you know, set aside some money to a, a particular cause that this, that Christian yeah, that, Cooper that cares about. that would have been about. a strong move, right? It's a premium. But we're going to charge premium. premium and premium. they want to use part of the proceeds to support, like, that is awesome. And it probably would have made a gazillion dollars if they marketed that, it, yeah, right? Yeah, right? so, I think you're right. Like, you're right. So, so that's maybe okay. I think we're agreeing here. That's maybe the one area that they could have done a little bit differently here. But uh, but I like the the sort of the story being built out of this and and um and yeah, I'm excited about it. Very cool. Okay, so then um, moving on then on the courage and cringe, we've got uh, an agency out of uh, your old stomping ground. Let's uh, <laughs> no no no. <laughs> it is your old stuff. To, to it, yeah. I'm trying to tie you to all the bad stuff. Uh, yeah, exactly. So. Uh, the Richards Group, which is one of the nation's largest independent advertising agencies, um, has recently lost the Motel 6 as a client after its founder reportedly labeled the ad, an ad pitch, an internal ad pitch, right? And this happens all the time. Agencies sort of do internal ad pitches, and then based on what they like, they go and present it to client. But the problem was that he called his ad pitch as being too black for the lodging chain's white supremacist constituents. So, I mean, the, the second this happened... You know, immediate controversy. Motel Six dropped them like right away. Yeah, and uh, you know his comments, his remarks came after the employees in the ad agency had pitched an idea celebrating black artists, right? And this was an internal, almost like an internal pitch. But uh, once I'm sure the the word got out, it got reported. Even the Dallas Morning News received an anonymous account of the meeting, which was attended by about forty of Richards Group's employees. Um, now Motel Six was not part of it; it was an internal pitch. Um, but they immediately, the second they heard, they like dropped them. Very, they're very not quickly. the only one. They've lost a fair bit of business. Um, There's going to be a massive fallout from that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's huge. So, you know, when I first heard this, I just, I started laughing. I'm sorry. Like it was, this is so bad. It's so bad. And I don't know how in any kind of, how in this day and age, first of all, at a CEO, anyone in a company can think that they can make a comment like that. Both the two black and even and then to just make it even better, say that their audio or their yeah their 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 consumer base is white supremacist constituents, and thinking that that somehow that comment is a okay to say and then b is somehow going to stay within that internal group that is having this conversation like. How do you possibly justify that? Which is why I couldn't stop laughing when I heard about this. I, I equally laughed, and I'm pretty sure we're going to end up on the same side of this one as well. This is not uh, starting off very courageous. Um, it's going to end up in the cringe category. But there's a couple things that I thought about that I'd love your thoughts on. Number one is if you were to say – he made the, both sides of that comment, right? Too black for our white supremacist clients' constituents, basically. If you were going to put percentage on those – why do you th- and he stepped down right he's the found- i don't think anybody can fire him maybe maybe there's a board or something yeah, that i don't, I don't know. know actually yeah but he 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 bailed right on on this already but anyway let's assume you're he was fired or asked to leave right. what percentage would you put on those two statements which percentage was the reason why he got asked to leave in other words it, i'm just curious about that yeah, to start yeah, yeah. do you have a thought I, on that i think if i would have if i hear both i think the two, bl- I actually think the worst one is saying white supremacist constituents. Like, that is terrible. The two black is bad. It's really bad. And that, in this moment, will probably still be a big social issue and, and et cetera, right? But I almost feel that the two black comment, he could probably try to find a way to somehow wiggle his way into trying to justify somehow. I'm not saying it's okay to say that. 
I'm not, I don't even agree with the sentiment, but I think there's more plausible ways of deniability. And by the way, we don't even know what the creative is that led him to think it was too black. I'd yeah. love to see the creative yeah, the, too. The idea, well, I don't know about the exact creative, right? But the idea was celebrating black artists. That's that was the the overall genesis mm-hmm. of the idea, right? So the, it being too black, I said, no, no, what I meant to say wasn't diverse enough. I wanted to see, you know, more representation. Yeah. Like you could sort of find creative ways, even though it's totally wrong to say, more Here's, creative ways to say yeah. that. But there is no talking yourself out of saying that the constituents for Motel 6 are white supremacists. Like right. how do you, like there's absolutely nothing you can say at that point. Like you've stepped in it. Many of which are- You're neck deep not, in it at that point. Not only not white supremacists, they're not white, including me, because I've been to many Motel 6s I've and all, the, Motel Six before. all I mean, the road trips I've taken with my I, kids I don't in my understand life. that comment at all. Yeah. Well, at I think all. some of when it you think about the national, the national distribution of, of, um, uh, of Motel 6, like, what are you talking about? Like, who are you talking about? What are you talking about? Is that, yeah, is it a, a more economic option for hotel stay? Sure. But a lot of people can say that. I would say that I'm, I'm sure if you looked at the actual data, it's a probably fair representation. I of think it would be very fair. People that, will, that will go there. So maybe even an over-index, frankly. Maybe maybe an over-index. So yeah. What the hell are you talking about? Like, that is such yeah. a dumb comment that is not even at all representative of the actual consumers of Motel 6. Yeah, this strikes me as the kind of flippant kind of you know, quasi arrogant statement that a lot of folks say in these kind of sectors. And, you know, we, we have a lot of experience in these kind of rooms where people, you know, take themselves very seriously and their work very seriously and kind of believe that in some cases they're untouchable. So I think that this falls into that category. My distinction a little bit with how I see it, though, is that here's what I think. I don't. I think this guy would consider himself an uber ally to progressive causes. I would put him in a camp, as most people in the advertising industry are, as being very progressively aligned politically, voting record, you know, donations, that kind of thing. And what I believe he was saying was, or, or what I think he was saying was, hey, he was not making a comment about so much the creative as saying that the constituencies of constituents of Motel Six were racist and couldn't handle the kind of sophistication, right? I think what he was saying is, oh, no, no, this is too too black, meaning it's too, it's too diverse. It's too advanced. It's too sophisticated for these, you know, knuckle draggers that are going to end up going to Motel 6. I agree that both statements were wrong, but I don't think that they can be seen independently. I don't think that the idea of too black had anything to do with actually saying, that black is wrong. I think he was saying black is good and our constituents are the, the knuckle draggers. I think the way to, I, I disagree with both statements emphatically, but I believe that if you had that person sitting right here next to us, they would say, oh, I'm a huge ally. And what I was trying to say is that the people who go to these motels, they couldn't handle this because only us kind of sophisticates understand this kind of messaging that is really, yeah. you know, again, it's the wrong words. I mean, I would say he was fired or let go 90% for the two black comment and 10% for the white supremacist com- comment. Oh, man, I completely disagree with that. Okay. Yeah, but that, th- that, that's, my, the, the that's my thought. opposite because we've heard other versions of too black. Oh, it's too urban. What, what do you mean by too urban? Yeah, yeah you, know, you know what I mean? It's just too, it's, it's too urban, right? There's other ways people have made that same kind of sentiment of the first portion. For sure. And that are don't get fired, and you hear it all the time. And, and I agree with you. I think there's people, especially when you think about agencies, creative agencies, people that are that have a lot of power in these places that feel like they can't do no wrong. That that what they say goes, and they have this gut, and, and this is like they just know what it is, right? But in that comment, that second piece coming out, once again, there is no scenario where you can walk your, your, yourself back from that comment. There is no confusion about what you're saying. Now. 
the thing that I found really interesting is that you're entirely wrong. I mean, I'm almost, I hate to say, probably more offended of how little he understands about who are the people that actually go to Motel 6. I was going to say, you got well, the like, account for 26 years. You're record, and you're the, telling me that you have no idea who goes 20, to Motel 6. 26 years, and you haven't figured out the well, consumer, the, the part, segmentation on this one. And I hate, as a maybe someone that's more of a marketer, like, that offends me, that you will be yeah. an owner of agency who's represented this account for so long time, have so little understanding about who actually goes to, to this. But I do think the second part, I just don't see that there's no way to to walk it back. But the but the headlines on the pieces that I read, the headline piece was he makes a comment about two black, just so you yeah, know. And, and, and I think right the two black is, actually, di- is directly in reference to the insult he was trying to make about Motel 6. That's that's what I'm trying to get you're, at. You're you're entirely right about that. So the headlines are that very much con- tying it back to being too black, but it's, it's actually not it's more of a of an insult to their consumers. Um but I do think when we, when you actually look at what he says, the second piece is there's just no redemption from it. Because I do think if all he had said was just too black for this consumers, there there may be a way he can talk his way out of that. But you just can't, and it's just was interesting. And actually, the, the other part I just I just don't know. So my initial inclination is to push back is whether or not he is an uber liberal or not. Like no idea. What I do know is you are you're an agency that's based out of Dallas with an account that is based out of Carrollton, which is right next to Dallas, you're not in the heartland of of, of liberal country, right? You are in a very, I would say mm-hmm. at this point, reddish purple, although Dallas itself is actually tends to be more much more yeah. democratic. Um, but you have a lot of hardcore Republicans there, having lived there for nine years. For sure, but, we, um, but we're talking about a particular industry, though. Y- yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's but be also, fair. S- but this is not an agency that's based in Santa Monica, is what my point I'm trying to make. Mm, uh, yeah, or an agency I, I, that is based in you know in New York City. Like, and I, you're and still I, in the I get heartland. That. I get that, but if I had to take odds on the advertising industry, especially people in creative circles who identify progressively versus conservative values, I would take that money. I'd take that bet every day, every day of the week and twice on Sunday that that the vast majority of people would find themselves aligned with progressive causes. And that's why I'm making that statement, I think, fairly it is a it is a guess, but I think it's a fairly educated one. By the way, right. same thing with the with with our our, our earlier idea of uh, or, or earlier story of Christian Cooper, the woman who did all this, super progressive, right? There's been articles written about her donations she'd made. Same thing. She was not some Alabama you know MAGA hat wearer, right? So what I'm what I'm saying is that that part is also very interesting to me that. A lot of the sort of self-inflicted wounds, let's call it, that sometimes happen on the progressive side and that even though people vote a particular way or say a particular thing, nevertheless, it doesn't always mean that they act in, in a particular way. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that, you're not going to hear me disagree with that with that point. So I think we're in agreement then or agreement Yeah, so I think the Richard's group is not a, a liberal or progressive issue. It's just a dumb issue. Like that is just dumb. So hardcore like, cringe. Cringe in the statement, cringe in not knowing who, like, not knowing apparently anything about your client, because yeah. if, if that's what you really think is going to Motel 6, you, you're just, I'm disappointed across the board. And my guess is that the fallout will continue. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Last one then, our friends at Starbucks in the news again, as if Starbucks wasn't ubiquitous enough, right? There's not enough Starbucks, now they're, uh, they're, but they're constantly in the news. What do they do now? Yeah, so Starbucks um, recently released a diversity plan, and it's specifically to tie executives' compensation to the diversity of its workforce, with officials announcing that by 2025, the goal was to have 30% of corporate employees and 40% of retail and manufacturing workers uh, who identify as black, indigenous, or people of color. So basically diverse people, right? Um, 
They also said that they were going to start a new mentorship program, anti-bias training requirements and other initiatives, right? I love the mentorship program already because you and I have talked about that quite a bit. What's interesting about this announcement is, A, like very tangible, measurable, et cetera, but it does come in the heels of what we talked about maybe last week or before that, which is it comes in the heels of the Labor Department having just launched investigation against Microsoft and Wells Fargo over diversity initiatives following, of course, the executive order from the Trump administration prohibiting government contracts, contractors from offering certain types of racial sensitivity and other kinds of diversity training. So you see all of this. Now, I think the other part that's interesting to talk about is that when Starbucks did also share their diversity numbers, right, that show in its U.S. workforce, um, 8% are black, 27% are Hispanic, uh, 6% Asian, and 5% multiracial, and 54% white, right? So that's their overall workforce. However, when you look at corporate demographics, they show that 65% of their workers are white, 19% are Asian, 7% Hispanic, and nearly 4% are black. So obviously much, much bigger gaps in the corporate uh, demographics. Although if you look at its overall workforce, especially for African-Americans, you know, they're, they're quite under-indexing here. Um, so your, your thoughts when you hear this, especially in the context of what we talked about with Microsoft, etc. Yeah, I went one click deeper into this, the data, by the way, because obviously they've got a whole, um, all of their... Um, whatever it's called, all of the things that they have to submit because they're a public company and all that stuff. So there is a document that actually breaks down their employment data inside of the organization, corporate, and then breaks it down by uh, layer, by management layer, right? So I actually was able to look that up. And just as an FYI for Latinos, there is one, one Latino executive and Latino executive and one Latina executive. So it's a pair, which is... (laughs) Which is nice. And they're related. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) And they're related. Yeah, exactly. Brother and sister. It's uh, So when you look at it that way, and we'll we'll include that stat in the show notes as well, so you can actually break it down. It is, I mean, the stats you mentioned are pretty bad, but this one, when when you look at the layers above, you know, basically a technician, it gets pretty, pretty dire pretty quick. So, um, okay. So that's, that's that. Look, beside the, I like the mentorship. I agree with you on that. That one statistic, I give them credit for laying out the um, the plan, and I give them credit for the transparency because they're wanting to hold themselves accountable to that. I think all of that is really, really good. I think for me, this one does still fall into the cringe area for a couple of reasons. One is I still believe that it's about it's more about um, uh, you know dashboards and you know kind of goal setting and all of those things than it is about, and the rules, training, all of those things, which I think are important, but they're almost like the byproduct rather than real connection, right, with people. At least that's how I read it, right? So let me give you an example because I haven't mentioned a 80s or 90s movie reference lately, oh. so I'm going to do one now. I'm going to see if I can guess which, which Great, one is. The greatest football movie of all time. Come on, it's a lot of great football movies. No, the greatest football movie of all time. Any Given Sunday? I like that one a lot. Oh, that's good. That's good. This one had Denzel Washington in it, my favorite Oh, yeah, Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans. Yes. The greatest movie. So, you know, Denzel Washington plays Coach... That's a fair assessment of that being great movie. Okay. Plays Coach Boone, right? The famous Coach Boone. Yeah, yeah. And what does he say to... This is obviously at the height of the civil rights era, and he's got the uh, young men who are going off to football camp for the summer, and initially they get on two buses. The black players are on one bus. The white players are another. He realizes that he has them basically integrate. And then that begins this odyssey of training, which is like one of the high point of the movie, in my, in my opinion. And there's a part in that movie where after there's a 
there's refusal to integrate. He basically says, each one of you will find out something about a player of another color. You will find out who their parents are, where they come from, get to know them. That scene is so impactful, but what it has as a principle and an insight that is so clear is the idea that we don't get anywhere unless we actually connect with individuals. And what I see here, even in the mentorship one, which is the one that I like the most, even in that one, the mentorship says, we're gonna put some people of color into rooms with the executives. And I can imagine this, right? Because I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I'm an up and coming, I'm a director level diverse person, I'm gonna get put into a room with an SVP EVP who's not diverse. And clearly by the stats I just shared with you, they're not going they're to not, be. Right. What's that going to feel like? It's still me kind of being in this environment that hopefully by osmosis will rub off on this person, but it has absolutely nothing to do with that person taking an interest in me. And that's where I think these things fall apart is that they're not driven or oriented around people actually taking a legitimate interest and having a relationship with people. And it's all about how am I doing on this dashboard? And I think that it's going to help somewhat but I don't think it gets us all the way there. And so for me, when I see these, I think you got a public company, a lot of people looking at you, you got to take steps, you got to lay it out all out there, but it seems very transactional to me, or not, maybe not very, it seems transactional to me and more focused on, you know, uh, rules and dashboards than on people. And that's the part to me that I think is missing. The, the sentiment of what you said about really invested in people and caring about them and understanding them at a core level makes complete sense. The thing, I, the thing I do like about this program, the reason why I put it more in the courage uh, category is that it is measurable. It's tangible. It puts real incentives for people that are actually trying to drive these these goals. And without those things, many times organizations organization can make a statement that we're going to care more about our employees. We're going to connect at a personal level. But there is no goal. There's no incentive. So the likelihood of that actually happening is it's going to be tough, Right. Um, the part that it is a tricky thing, and I and I still I struggle with the one about Microsoft. I struggle with this one as well. Is that you're in this situation where it's it's like you're having to force change via policy, via incentives that shouldn't have shouldn't have to be the case. Look, all things being equal, you should just be able to hire the best people, bring out the best people through an organization. But in doing that, you would also have significantly better representation than what you, we currently have. You know, to the stat that you mentioned. When you look at your senior leadership, you have only one Latino and one Latina. Like literally, that's it that you have. When you look at, I mean, that's just it's it's sad. It's sad that they've gone up to this point where, and even being a Seattle-based company it doesn't matter. I mean, they have national representation across you know across the board. Global and, and glo yeah, you're right. Global for for them. So there is no scenario where that should be the case. Uh, so I do at least celebrate their their willingness to put themselves on the table. And say we're going to do this. This is how we, how we're going to go about about creating this kind of this kind of change. And maybe some of it is transactional and it starts transactional initially in the same way that to some extent, even the example that you share about the story, it starts with an activity. The activity can feel transactional, but the outcome could actually be real connection, right? So that's kind of what, why I see it. Well, so that's why I don't put them in the cringe category yeah. because I like at least they're trying to address a gap that they recognize. And I do see it more than just simply good PR because they could have also just put up a new cup for for uh, for the holidays that is like black and white. No, I'm serious. Like, <laughs> which they're known yeah. for that. Like, they're yeah. known for the holidays. That, that would have oh, been going to be the cup and what's going to be the new drink. That would have been a short segment for us. They could have done that, yeah. right? And that would have been like, well, massive cringe. Yeah. But you're like, no, no, no. We have a real issue. We recognize it. We're going to try to solve for it. Um, and that's why I put it more in the. Well, I think the category. fun of this segment is that we have to force. There's a forcing mechanism where you have to yeah. put them in one or the other. And so for me, it's going to be a cringe. Um, and I think what what the point that you just brought up, which I think is actually a very very good point, is that um, you know we have to have the the kind of content and the container, right? There's there's a there's a 
there's a kind of yin-yang thing to this where the activity can lead to that sort of moment of connection. And I definitely agree with that. I would have liked to have seen some of those more kind of softer things as part of this, right? So the mentorship as not like, you know, the, 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 the person being in a room with an executive, but really the executive almost having like the corporate, the corporate version of a pen pal from back in the day, like, we're going to find out everything about us. We're going to walk step by step. We're going to almost do like job sharing or something, but something that could do that. Maybe more, more parts of it where the executive community actually makes inroads into the community personally, not because they got an email from somebody, but like, I'm literally going into, into these different communities to learn and engage and interact. One of the best examples and first examples Examples that I had in my career of like good mentorship was actually at Accenture. So they what they did there is that when you would come in as a brand new analyst, right, like right out of college, right, um, they will pair you up. And I forget now, it may, it may not have been a partner, maybe it was like a manager, but someone like significantly higher rank. And you had this sort of ongoing conversation with them about your career. And it was like this really encouraged to have a real dialogue with, with these folks and especially people that had been in the consulting industry for a while. And I got to tell you, like that to me was super impactful. Someone that, I, you know, I had no experience in the consulting industry when I first came in, you know, came out of college. I really thought that while it was very structural, it was very well defined, number of times you needed to meet, there was like paperwork you needed to fill out. But it, it, for, it was a forcing mechanism to create that kind of connection and really to get actually really interesting insights from people that were, Ultimately, we're trying to be helpful, right? Even if it was sort of a forced, a, a forced uh, item. Yeah. Again, you know, good and bad, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to stick with my vote. So we disagree on that, uh, on that last one. Any, um, any closing and, and change your mind, but apparently I failed. You, no, you did. I mean, you brought up some, <laughs> some good points, but I think that's, uh, like I said, we have to, we're forced to put them in one or the other. Um, any uh, parting thoughts, Jesus, for this week? Um, uh, a lot of nuanced conversation in this one, I think. Um, I think the the celebrations that we're seeing is cases like you know the you know the, the the new comic book that was put out by Christian Cooper. Love that sort of new form of storytelling and and hopefully bringing awareness of some of these issues to people that maybe are not as plugged into into what's happening here. And I love sort of the to some ways it feels very retro, right? And coming back to this style of storytelling is comics. I think comics have a history of being more political um, and sharing some of these issues with with, with kids. Uh, so I, I love that. Um, I still think, go, and the other thing is sort of the big takeaway for me when I think about the Richards group is like misses across the board, right? And I think it's a big lesson learned in my mind, right? If you are a, a an owner, a leader, and especially if you're in that sort of agency kind of world where you have multiple clients, I think how you speak about your clients, what you say, first of all, the fact that you even think you can say things like this and they're not to get out, I think it's a massive mistake, but also speaks to like, know your clients. Like you have to know your business, know your clients. To me, there's this, this failure across the board. In some ways, I'm actually more offended, as I said earlier, of how little this guy seems to actually know about this client that they've had for years, for decades actually, right? Uh, that's what I'm more offended about. And I think my last sort of takeaway is like when I do think about the 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 you know the the policy or the the platform that Ice Cube you know put out with the contract with Black America, I would say that this is a great example of when we I think we all take a, a collective breath and actually dig into the details, go to the sources, understand the nuance, because my reaction to that Chris Cuomo interview was pretty negative for something that the more I read it, the more I understood about it. Was well, like wow, this is actually pretty interesting that he's doing this. My my reaction to the President Trump plan on plan. Not negative, it was very dismissive, I would say. It wasn't necessarily negative, just very dismissive because of all the issues that we talk about. But ultimately, look, the reality is, let's say there is a scenario where, um, there is, I'm sorry, let's say President Trump does win a re-election. Will 
African Americans have been better off by having incorporated some of these uh, ideas that Ice Cube was putting out with this contract of Black America. Yeah, and I think that's the part that we also can't lose thought, can't lose sort of yeah. our focus on that piece. And if that also forces the Biden campaign to sort of take it more seriously because of Trump, you know, even if it's all purely opportunistic, and I have. 100% distrust in their, their motivations, but even that also forces them to be a little more proactive, thoughtful, mm-hmm. then that's a good thing. Then ultimately, you know what? Then Ice Cube succeeded. So whether I may not agree to how he positions it, I think the goal here is how do we actually drive real change, which is that I 100% agree with. Um, and that's what I what I sort of was my takeaway with the more I sort of let this thing kind of marinate and think about what he was actually doing. I agree with that. And just to close it out, to add my one uh, insight, because I agree with the ones that you shared, especially the idea of kind of going through the sources and the importance of that, which we'll continue to hit on uh, on this show and in other in other places, um, especially now, is um, my one thing takeaway is the importance of when we build to build both the container and the content. And I think where uh, to my mind, where both the uh, the Ice Cube plan and even this sort of Starbucks example may fall a bit short is that there's a bias on the framework, there's a bias on the structure, and there's not as much a focus on the things that actually change human perspectives, hearts, and minds, and that's the connection, that's the touch, that's the relationship. I think we can have the greatest dashboard in the world and the greatest process and the greatest metrics that we're all going to track, but if we're really not interested in connecting with other people at a human level, um, and that's not somehow built into this, can, you know, think of that as the content to the container example, then I think that we're going to probably fall short. So I think it's thinking of it in those minds of like the, you know, remember the Titans example? It's a dumb little activity, but the outcome is unification of that team and eventual state champs, as everybody knows. And if you haven't seen that movie, watch that movie tonight. Tonight. It's the greatest movie, maybe the greatest sport movie for me, but one of the top movies ever um, in terms of a feel-good movie. So anyway, thank you, Jesus. Another great week down. Um, And thank you all for listening and continuing to be in touch. We appreciate it. We'll see you again next time on TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. 
Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.